Well, let me begin by asking you for a show of hands if you've ever read or watched the Lord of the Rings books or movies. Raise your hand. Good. Like an educated church. J.R.R. Tolkien penned the words that, um, as we know, as the Lord of the Rings. He's the author and uh, obviously the one in which the movie was adapted. And I use the term adapted loosely. Um, he amazes me because in his imagination he, he created these worlds. Uh, he created these lands and maps and creatures. And those creatures and those kingdoms had their own ethic and they had their own language and they had their own purposes. Um, one particular group that was... One of my favorites were the dwarves. These are not your snow white dwarves. These are your, uh, you know, beer drinking, beard uh, possessing, axe wielding, uh, strong backed, mine uh, excavating dwarves. And these dwarves amassed a large wealth um, in the area which they live called the Mines of Moria. And in those mines, they would amass these great depositories of these precious stones, or excuse me, this precious metal that, uh, that they dug up there. The problem for the dwarves in the mines of Moria was that the wealth that they accumulated and they excavated was never enough. They consistently and continually dug deeper and deeper and deeper accumulating more and more wealth because they were never satisfied with what they had. And as you probably know and understand, that led to their destruction or their demise. Their greed for more wealth resulted in the very thing that destroyed them or um, dispersed them um, across the, the landscape. Now, I'm not really sure or... Uh, I don't understand exactly the inspiration that Tolkien used for the the minds of Moria. But I couldn't help but think about that this week as I was studying for our passage. Because in the Greek language, Moria means foolish. That's the language that we see. If that was his inspiration, it would make a lot of sense for us to see that the acts of the dwarves in Moria led... Uh, resulted in their foolish thinking that led to their destruction. So therefore, Moria, in a sense, is not just a fictitious land. It's a reality in our world today. Foolishness leads to our destruction. Moria is rooted in the sinful human condition that can never satisfy our fleshly appetites. In our day and age, the digging deeper into the minds of foolishness is not just for wealth. It's also for political power, social prestige, outward physical perfection, just for some examples. For Paul's ministry to the Corinthians, he immediately addresses a dire problem among this body of believers. They were consumed with foolishness from the world, and they were allowing it to infiltrate their church. 
They were so consumed with this worldly influence that they were allowing the lust for wisdom to infiltrate their own way of thinking. For a Greek culture, now under Roman rule, the quest for wisdom was its own religion. Like our culture today, the search for a higher wisdom was always a subjective one, and it rested on an imbalanced and ever-changing relative idea. John MacArthur writes that the ancient Greeks were in love with philosophy around which their culture was built. They had perhaps as many as 50 identifiable philosophical parties or movements which vied for acceptance and influence. Each had its views of man or man's origin, significance, destiny, and relationship to the gods, of which they had many. Some of the philosophies had detailed schemes for the religious, political, social, economic, and educational ordering of society. Therefore, the Greeks were in love with human wisdom. They believed that philosophy, which literally means the love of wisdom, was all-important. Philosophy provided a view invented by man of the meaning of life, values, relationships, purpose, and destiny. Thus, there were as many philosophies as there were philosophers, and people tended to line up behind their favorite. They widely disagreed as to which philosophy was the truest and most reliable, and inevitably, many factions developed, each with its own leaders and adherents. Without an absolute standard of truth, ideas of right and wrong were based entirely on human opinion. Now we have to understand how relative or how real that idea that Paul was dealing with is true in our society today. This relative thought as to what is true and what is wise. And as much as we live in this culture today, and we claim to know wisdom, and we claim to have understanding, we'll meet someone down the street who will equally claim to have wisdom and have understanding. And so we have to begin our study today by asking the question, who defines wisdom and truth? It's a heavy question to ask. You may have one person who states that something is wise and another person with a contradictory view says the opposite thing is wise. Well, let's determine first of all, what does not determine wisdom? What does not determine wisdom? Or another way to say it is, what does not identify or characterize somebody as being wise? Let me give you a couple Number one, being the loudest does not mean you are wise. Politicians, philosophers, and scientists all want to scream the loudest about their views regarding humanity, but having the loudest microphone or the biggest platform screaming your views does not mean that you are wise. My family is Italian. We are very loud. doesn't mean that we are wise. Number two, having the most support does not mean that you are wise. History has shown us that some of the most evil leaders in history were able to accumulate followers and supporters. A mass amount of supporters or disciples does not mean that you are teaching them and and telling them things that contain wisdom. 
for us truly to know wisdom, it cannot be a wisdom that originates in men because we are fallible human beings. Instead, we know that wisdom can truly only come from God alone. Why? Because wisdom coming from God never changes. It is not biased. It is not culturally molded. Wisdom from God is eternal because it comes from Him, and therefore it is based upon His characteristics of goodness and faithfulness and truthfulness. You're familiar with Proverbs 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Lewis Goldberg writes that the ethical dynamic of Greek philosophy lay in the intellect. If a person had a perfect knowledge, he could live the good life. Knowledge was virtue, they believed. The emphasis of the Old Testament was that the human will in the realm of practical matters was to be the subject of divine causes. Therefore, human, or excuse me, Hebrew wisdom was not theoretical and speculative. It was practical, based on revealed principles of right and wrong to be lived out in daily life. Therefore, the wisdom that we need doesn't come from man and our intellect. It isn't coming from a pining of different philosophies and ideas in this world. It comes from the way in which God reveals wisdom to us through His Word. Therefore, to be wise is to receive wisdom from God, and to be foolish is to reject God's wisdom. So as a church, we come to understand wisdom and foolishness so that we can come and understand God's Word to follow it. Therefore, our passage today will focus primarily just on 1 Corinthians 1.18 where Paul gives us what I call the dividing line of the Gospel. of A dividing line that separates the wise from the foolish. It's a very serious and very clearly drawn line that divides all of humanity. It divides them between the foolish and the wise. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, he uses the word fool or foolishness, the Greek word moria, to refer to those who have rejected the word of the cross. We understand that word of the cross to be the gospel message intimately or personally or specifically. But we can even broaden that to say that all of God's word draws the contrast between the wise man and the foolish man based on those who accept and receive God and His Son Jesus Christ or those who reject Him. You'll be familiar with all of the Proverbs that King Solomon wrote and the contrasts that are made between the wise and the fool, showing us the dividing line that exists. For example, Proverbs chapter 10 has two mentioned. 
In verse 8, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs 10 verse 14, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. In Proverbs 12 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Paul makes the point that the fool is a fool because he rejects God and the message of God that was sent in his son. As a result, the rejection of God means that those doing the rejection are in the process and are destined for perishing, which is the eternal judgment of God. Simon Kissmaker makes a very good point in his commentary stating that Paul is making clear that those fools who reject the message of the cross are not on the verge of perishing. They're not just destined to perishing. They are actually perishing. What this means is that the fools of this world who reject God and all that He commands and the message of the cross and all that we understand about Christ and the work of redemption, they are not only reserved for the judgment before they receive it, they are not only destined for the the eternal fires of hell, but they are actually in a current state of judgment of God that He has made clear in His Word. They are left to their sinfulness and debased minds. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're familiar with this passage. Look at how Paul describes to the Romans the foolish man and the way in which he is being judged for his foolishness in his current state, not in the future alone. Starting in verse 22, describing the unrighteous man. Well, actually, let's start with verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There we have, church, the rejection of God by foolish people. Therefore, how did God judge them? How did God judge them? Not that He only destines and reserves a place for them in hell, but now in their sinfulness it says God gives them up in their lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the Creator rather than the, create, uh, the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations of those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving it in themselves the due penalty for their error. How else did God judge them? Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up once again to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew no God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Three times in verse 22, verse 24, and verse 26 of Romans 1, God shows us that the fool is not only judged in the future, but he is being judged, just as Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, the word of of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing, present tense. The fool is in a current state of perishing because God has allowed them to be consumed with the rejection of God and the sin in which they live. And it is not difficult for us to come across in our mind's eyes multiple illustrations. For example... This past two weeks and after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, after the overturning of, of a law in which over 50 years of the murdering of innocent children, the fools of this world have continually expressed their rage in unimaginable ways. You can go on social media and easily find videos of foolish mothers so angry at their so-called rights taken away from them that many look down at their born children that they're holding in their arms and verbally wish that those children would have been killed or aborted because they felt their rights were taken away from them. How foolish and debased in your mind can you be to look at a child in your arms and wish it it was dead? Church, we need to open our eyes and understand the dividing line of foolishness and wisdom that exists. We need to stop looking in our world for political saviors that are going to change things and start looking at the true Savior who can only bring real change. Only Jesus can change a mother's heart to accept and understand and believe and cherish the life that is within her. It is Jesus who can change the hearts and lives by the power of His death and resurrection. And any attempts that we try with human wisdom and and ingenuity and try to create some change in our world without with leaving God out, leaving out His Word, leaving out His principles, leaving out His truth, they're, they're worthless efforts. Because fools reject the wisdom and the knowledge of God. They reject the message of God. And because of it, they are already perishing. And they will perish for all eternity. God leaving them over to their temporary debasement of mind and lust is a judgment now, but it is a single flame of judgment in comparison to the forest fire of eternal judgment that they will face when they see Christ as their judge. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 13. He said that just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, 
so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and they will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. John also writes, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what had been done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. Church, there is no easier way to say it. Our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors who are living in foolishness and debased minds, they are already in a state of torment. They are already living in a state of judgment of, from God upon themselves. We may look at them and think that their life is great and, and, and they may have a amassed amount of wealth and, 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 and prosperity. But the truth of the matter is in their foolishness as they are rejectors of God, as they are enemies of God, they are living under His judgment, uh, judging arm and, and hand at this very day, in these very moments. And they are destined for a greater, merciless, and eternal judgment that we cannot comprehend with words. And in every way, we, church, have been rescued and they have not yet been saved. And yet the Lord clearly uses verses like this to help us see that, 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 that they are perishing, that they are separated from the wise in this world. And that shouldn't bring us to boast. That shouldn't bring us uh, to, to, to pat ourselves on the back. It's written not only to draw us to Christ, but to give us an awareness of the state of those who we desperately love and care for. They are under God's judgment. And they will face His eternal judgment one day. And the Lord has saved us and He's allowed us to play a part in saving them. We know what is coming. We know the message of judgment that comes. We know that they've rejected the message of the cross and therefore they are perishing. And we must be, as Peter called Noah, a preacher of righteousness. We must be willing to warn the world that is existing in here, uh, in, this, in this life, of the judgment to come, of the promised doom. We must not be like Jonah who was unwilling to go and take a message of the perishing and the judgment that was to come. But we must be Jonah 2.0, who was faithful in the end to preach a message and pray that God would bring repentance. Or John the Baptist, or Jesus our Lord. So that God may use us to proclaim a message to say, you are living in foolishness, you are living with a debased mind. You are in the judgment of God and therefore God is judging you and He will eternally judge you. Repent and believe in Christ should be our message. And we pray that God would so overwhelm their hearts 
and they would understand the reality of the judgment that they would serve and trust Christ turning from their wicked ways before it's too late. We must be willing as a church to put aside political correctness. We must be willing to put aside relational rejection. We must put on love and speak the truth in that love. And Paul was very clear with the Corinthian church that they were being consumed with an ideology of foolishness in the church. They were allowing foolish thoughts and foolish ways to consume them. He had already talked about the divisions and the factions that had arisen in the church in verses 10 through 17. And those very factions and divisions had arisen because of the worldly influences of the sophists and the philosophers that I mentioned earlier that they were now allowing to infiltrate the church and lead the people in Corinth to create their own divisions and factions. Seeking to be uh, attached to or an appendage or a follower of the wisest of the apostles or the wisest of the teachers. And all that was doing was dividing the church. So Paul is calling them out. As believers in Jesus Christ, he was saying, Stop, be, stop being foolish, stop living like fools, be wise. And he wants them to understand the dividing line of the gospel. That what these human wisdom seekers and proclaimers were really doing were contrary to the Word of God. And because they rejected the Word of God, they lived as fools in their foolishness. Paul also tells us about the wise. Now, he doesn't use the word wise in verse 18. But all throughout chapter 1, starting in verse 18, all the way through chapter 4, the contrast of the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man is at play. So we're going to talk a lot about wisdom and foolishness for many weeks to come. That's why I'm introducing it to you today. You will be sick of hearing me say it because it is the theme that has to be pounded into the head of the Corinthians and it needs to be pounded into our heads as well because we are so susceptible as a church to allow the foolishness of this world to infiltrate our hearts and minds. Thinking that we need the wisdom of this world. And so Paul contrasts Those who are perishing, those who are in their folly, who have rejected the word of the cross, in comparison to us, he says, who are being saved. He says, to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. Therefore, we are the wise in Christ. We are the wise in Christ. Again, the Bible tells us that the Word of God in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord or the Word of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So we know then that the Word of God 
as we come to understand it and believe it and trust in it, makes us wise in Christ. It's not our wisdom. No, instead, it is the wisdom that we receive from God as He opens our hearts and minds to believe it. Therefore, the dividing spiritual line of God is being drawn to separate the fool from the wise, or in other ways, the sheep from the goats, or the wheat from the tares, or the narrow road from the broad road, or the unrighteous from the righteous. That dividing line is simply the message and the truth of God and the gospel and how people might respond to it. Now, as a preview to a future sermon... Let me go into detail with you exactly why the message of the cross is foolishness to some and not to us. Paul says that the, the, the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. Why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? Let me explain very briefly. The Jews were wanting a political leader. They wanted a Messiah, but they didn't want a Messiah necessarily that was seeking to save them spiritually. They wanted a dominant, masculine ruler like King David who would come and lay waste of their political enemies. The cross to the Jews was a stumbling block because if the Messiah had come in Jesus to see Jesus die upon the cross was silly to them. The cross was, in the Jewish perspective, a cursed thing. The Bible told them, the Old Testament Scriptures taught, that to be hung on a tree was a cursed thing. So for Jesus, the promised Messiah as He claimed to be, to literally die on the cross was a stumbling block to unbelieving Jews. They could not see the redemptive thread that God had woven through time to use the cross to bring atonement for sin. All they saw was a cursed cross and a failing Messiah hanging upon it. And they turned away. Also for the Greeks which in this text I think means more broadly all Gentiles, particularly Gentiles in Paul's day, because whether you take the Greeks or the Romans, their belief in God was not that God would come and die at the hands of men. That's not a powerful God in their minds. For Jesus to offer forgiveness of sins and die like a criminal on a cross did not portray to the Greeks and the Romans a true God to be worshipped. Instead, he was one to be rejected, one who showed weakness and not strength. Therefore, the Jews and the Greeks rejected the cross message and all Jesus stood to accomplish because in their own logic and reason, it was ridiculous. But to those who are being saved, it was and it is the power of God. So let me ask you a question this afternoon. How do you understand the gospel. How did you understand it? How did it make sense to you and not Jews in Jesus' day who had all the Old Testament Scriptures to understand? That had been taught all these things about atonement and sacrifice, 
about the, the, the Messiah-like figures of David and Moses and Abraham? How is it that some Americans came to understand a Jewish man dying on the cross and the Jews themselves did not understand it? How is that possible? The answer is, it wasn't because of your human wisdom. It goes back to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works that have done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, by whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs of the promise of the hope of eternal life. Church, you are wise in Christ because God chose to rescue you from your foolishness. And He chose to rescue you from your foolishness. And the only way possible for you as a young or middle-aged American to even comprehend a a, a Jewish Messiah dying on the cross and rising from the grave is because He gave you the comprehension and the understanding to see Jesus as the true source of salvation. It's not some... Wisdom and knowledge that you came to understand in your own thinking and intellect. And it's very clear that Paul will make in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and into chapter 2 that we must understand that the wisdom that we have from God in Christ comes from Him completely, otherwise we will fall into boasting. And this was the Corinthian church's problem is that once you attach yourself to a wise teacher, then you have some reason to boast in that teacher and all that he has taught you. So when the world infiltrates the church, therefore the leaders in the, or the members of the church therefore affix themselves to Paul or they affix themselves to Paulus. And what do they do? They go around and they boast about the great knowledge and wisdom that this teacher and this teacher has and it creates division among them. But Paul says, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The very display that you comprehend the folly or the foolishness of the gospel is because the power of God has overcome you. That's what's happened. That the very display of your comprehension of Jesus Christ, living the perfect life, dying, being buried and rising victorious from the grave is your only source of salvation is because the power of God is being displayed in you to take something that's dead and bring forth new life. And so we as the church, those who have trusted in Jesus, the Bible says, Paul says, we are those being saved. That we are being saved. Which is interesting, right? Because Paul uses language in three different ways. He says that we are saved. He says that we're being saved. And he says that we will be saved. 
And so if you kind of read a compilation of Paul, you may be a little confused. What is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is just teaching us that that salvation is a a language or an act that has happened. It is happening and it will happen. All those things are true. All those things provide a richness to the reality of the great work of Christ in us. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. We believe in Christ because we have been saved. And the gift of faith to believe has been granted to us. Like the Apostle Paul, at some point in your life, God opened your eyes to understand and comprehend the Gospel. We believe at this church that 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 regenerative work, that, that new life in Christ based upon the order of salvation occurs before we can ever comprehend or believe the Gospel in ourselves. Think about it. What does a dead person really hear when he's in the grave? Absolutely nothing. What does he understand in his deadness, in his lifeless body, in his lifeless auditory functions? Absolutely nothing. So how could you hear the gospel and believe if God did not awaken you first to believe? Therefore, all who have been saved are those who have been regenerated. And we believe that they have been regenerated because they have been predestined for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. These are not concepts that we understand at our salvation But praise God, through the reading of His Word and the study of His Word, we come to understand that these things have occurred in us. We have been saved because of the grace of Christ working in us at some point in our past. But in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul is not speaking about the past. He's speaking about the present. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... This is a present action. It is a work of redemption that has been accomplished by Christ, and yet it is continually having its fruit in its completion. Don't lose sight of this. We are not Catholics. We don't believe that the redemptive process of Jesus is continuing on, and we even provide some way of of that redemption Or that other figures like Mary and others provide a portion of that redemption. We declare as evangelical Protestant believers that Jesus Christ's work of redemption upon the cross is a finished work. He said, it is not still going. It is finished. Right? But as it is a finished work... It is a continual process in our lives. We are saved, and yet Scripture also teaches that we are being saved. For example, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, 
As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Now we as, as, as a church would say that, that the working out of our salvation is the sanctifying process of God. So that we are not trying to earn points or favor with God in, in a way in which we live for Him. We are not working out our salvation because the, the salvation effects have not been completed and paid for and assigned to us fully. But instead, we are working out our salvation in obedience to His Word, faithfully submitting and applying and doing all that God commands us out of love in the process of our growth in Jesus. Another way to say it is, is that our spirit has been redeemed and it's being renewed. We are growing day by day, the Bible says, more and more into the image of Christ. And the redemption of our spirit is continuing, but the redemption of our body is not continuing. Our body is what? Wasting away. So Paul makes clear that in Romans chapter 8, that there are two things that are particular about the redemption that is to come that is so necessary and important to look forward to. Right now, our spirit is being renewed day by day. We are growing. We are being sanctified. We are being saved, as Paul says in verse 18. But one day, Romans chapter 8, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For the whole creation, he says, groans together. It's been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So our spirit's being renewed. Our bodies are wasting away because of sin and death and corruption. And guess what? The earth is wasting away too. It's dying. There's no process of redemption at this point, for the earth until what? Jesus Christ returns. But notice, verse 23 of Romans 8, and not only the creation longs to be renewed, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of what? Our bodies. So as we are being renewed, church, understand that your spirit is being renewed Because you have been saved and you are saved. You're being saved. And in that process of being saved or sanctified as you may call it, your spirit is being renewed. But one day you look forward to those of us, that process by which we will be saved. The full and complete and the consummation of the redemption of Christ. When Jesus Christ descends from heaven creates a new heaven and a new earth, we experience that redemption of our bodies. 
We experience the awakening and the the rising from death to new life of our bodies that we've already experienced in the rising and death of our spirit when we've trusted in Christ and we've been awakened to new life. That's why we can say that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by His blood, we will be saved through Him from the wrath that's to come. So that salvation that we have in Christ, that that victory that we have in Jesus, that redemption that we look for, that salvation that we cling to will keep us from the wrath of God. Therefore, we are recipients of the greater Passover that, that that the Israelites experienced in Egypt where the wrath of God will eternally pass over us. Therefore, we will be saved through Him from His wrath. So the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's asinine. It makes no sense at all to a dying world. All these concepts that I've just spoke about for these minutes have have completely flown over the, the minds and the heads of people. They have no desire to learn of these things and understand them. They reject Jesus, a Jewish man who in their minds was potentially a great teacher, but he died as a criminal. And he had an effect on people because we're fanatics, as they might say. But if you sit here today and you sit here every day, and you sit at your house and you open God's Word and you you find nourishment and strength and and you find connection with the Lord in prayer and and you desire to, to serve other people and love people in the name and the glory of Christ... And you sing these songs and, and, and you're not just uh, admiring a good singer, but you, you read the words as you sing and you, and you know that they apply to you. And it moves your spirit to rejoice and, and find celebration in God. Then you know and understand that none of those things have happened to you on your own wisdom and strength. Because really all this should be folly to us. But instead... To those who are being saved, we are wise in understanding they are from God. And therefore, we rejoice in His granting to us of His wisdom to see Him and to know Him as our Savior and our Lord. I want to close today with an illustration of, of history there is a, a drawing, a painting on a cave wall. And it's a, a picture that they found carved into a plaster wall in the, sec, in the second century. And the uh, inscription on it said, uh, Alex Minios worships his God. And it's a picture of a man hanging on a cross in a very rudimentary and very simplistic way, with a donkey head of, on, top, on the man. This is an ancient uh, carving in a wall. Alex Minios is, a, I guess, a Greek name, worships his God. And as I read that, I, I was reminded that that's how the world looks at us. 
that we worship a, 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 a false god or a, a donkey-headed god because we're just making idiots of ourselves. Because they think that the message of the, of the cross is foolishness and it's folly. And this puts a lot into perspective for us as the church. Students, it, it puts a lot of perspective to understand why your friends think that your time in church and church events and Bible study is a waste of your time. They don't get you. They don't understand you. You're unequally yoked with them. So don't expect them to be, uh, have a morality and an ethic that you would have. Don't expect them to dress like you and speak like you and have the same values and principles that you would have. Because it's folly to them. And so that should challenge you, whether we're an adult or a student. Because if we look like them and we act like them and we talk like them, we might belong with them. Because there's a dividing line of the gospel and the message of the cross that really separates us from the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love Christ, if you follow Him, then you understand why it's foolishness to them. But for you, it's wisdom and it's joy. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the illuminating work that you've done in, in the lives of your people, that you would help us understand and know Christ. God, we celebrate this joyous moment for us. And we don't celebrate it, God, to give ourselves glory as if we've somehow found our way to God in our own intellect and strength. It's completely and, and solely in your work. Your spirits work in and through us to expose our sin and help us see your son as the only source of salvation. So as we enter in a world, Father, that we are considered fools, fools to the world, God, help us to cling to the principles and the truths of your wisdom as we are faithful day by day to grow and to be strengthened in you until Christ returns. And God, help us as we understand their foolishness. Help us to have compassion. Help us to see the judgment that lies before them and burn in our hearts a desire to teach them of Christ. God, we are in an imbalanced and unstable world. We have a myriad of ways, God, that we might be able to bring about spiritual conversations out of the fear and the worry and the anxiety that's risen in our culture to point people to the message of Jesus. God, help us to be faithful. And help us, God, in our faithfulness to trust that you will bring about your good purposes in saving people from their sins. We thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen. Let's stand together.